The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. pray together, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, Father, we, uh, we would pray uh, that you would bless our time uh, together now in your word. I'm just re- reminded of that song that um, nothing and no one comes close to you. And uh, we are sitting at your feet right now, and we would ask you to teach us, to change us, and to grow us into disciples, Christians who are more pleasing to you in every way. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was in the uh, States recently. Cheryl and I were in the States recently. We were visiting Luke, who's going to school, our youngest, uh, in downtown Chicago. And he said, Mom, Dad, we've got to go to this breakfast place. And so we, we made our way over there, went to this breakfast place. And it's, it's one of those places, these uh, seem to me are more common in the States than up here, um, one of these places that, that serves you a ridiculous amount of food in order to distract you from the fact that it's not actually that good. <laughs> don't, don't tell Luke I said that because he thinks the place is wonderful. But it's really just about the volume of food. And I think you know what I'm talking about. There are uh, restaurants that, that do that. They serve plenteous amounts of food to disguise mediocre to bad food, and then there are places that serve you a lesser amount of really good food. And I don't know what kind of person you are. Do not raise your hand. You may not want to be exposed for one or the other, but um, some of you I know, you like that. you just like, I just take me a place where they're going to serve me a lot. I don't care how good it is. Or you're like, no, you know what? I want to go to a restaurant that's going to serve really a quality stuff to me. It really... It comes down to more bad food or less good food, uh, quantity over quality or quality over quantity. Uh, what kind of person really are you? And that relates to something that's so important to us as a church. One of our uh, values as a Harvest Bible Chapel is a quality, listen, a quality of discipleship rather than a quantity of disciples. In other words, we're not trying to figure out Necessarily how to just do whatever we can to fill all the empty chairs. Soft pedal the gospel, make it easier for people. Uh, Use strategies to try and woo people in. That's not really the way we go about things. We believe that the thing we ought to be doing is just emphasizing the depth of our discipleship. We need to go deep as individuals and as a church and then kind of let God do the rest. If God wants to bring more people because that's what we've done, we feel like we focused on the quality and God brought the quantity. And to put it another way, it was said of pastor and author A.W. Tozer, some of you will know that name, he's now with the Lord. His biographer said this, Tozer concerned himself with the depth of his ministry and left the breadth of his ministry up to the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if that's to be believed and practiced in the life of our church and and in our lives as individual Christ followers, then we have to focus our efforts, get our eyes set on the depth of our personal walk with Jesus Christ. We need to ask the question then, if it's going to be about depth, how do I grow 
as a Christian. And we're going to see in today's passage, of the nearer you get to death, because Paul's going to talk about that a little bit, the nearer you get to death, the more you think about these very things. How deep is my walk with Christ? And the more aware you are of your mortality, the more interested you are in being, listen, being prepared to actually see Jesus when you get there. Are you prepared to see Jesus? And the lifetime, the, the preparation for that is a lifetime of spiritual growth. It's pursuing quality discipleship. So let me, let me read uh, 2 Corinthians, that's where we're going to be, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 1 to 10, and uh, then we'll begin unpacking this. So the Apostle Paul writes here, 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I am a growing Christian if, let's look at this first, I aim for more than what this world offers. I have to aim for more than what this world offers. Now back in chapter 4, before we get to this passage, our key passage here, we see that Paul is beginning to come to grips with something um, in his own life. He's becoming, coming to grips with the reality that Jesus is not going to come back before he dies. He's getting to the end of his life. He had spent his mission after his conversion and his call to ministry and going out and planting so many churches. He did that with such an urgency because he believed with all of his heart that Jesus was going to come back, that his return was so imminent that he needed to be working as hard as he possibly could to plant as many churches and tell as many people as he could about the gospel. Now he's getting to the point where he's going, I don't think that's going to happen. I really believe I'm actually going to die before Jesus comes back. And so now he's beginning to think, I'm going to be meeting Jesus at the judgment, and I need to be prepared for that when I pass from this life to the next. I wonder sometimes when I'm just thinking about that point, if we've lost the sense of urgency around the gospel and around our ministry, where we, we don't really believe, we're kind of opposite to Paul, we don't really believe he's going to come back in our lifetime. We, and, and that affects kind of all the decisions we make about how we live our life. 
Because now we believe I'm planning for 80 years. Paul wasn't planning for that really at all. And so he's, he's sorting out what's important and what's not, what's heavenly versus what's earthly, what's eternal versus what's temporal. And, 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 and really this is a point that's so important for us to understand that imminent death often brings clarity about what's really important. Isn't that true? Imminent death brings clarity about what's really important. When your health is on the line, when you've come face to face with passing from this life, all of a sudden you're like, that is not important. That is not important. This is important. And this, is, this is where Paul's getting to. In the midst of this, he says in verse 16 of chapter four now, not part of the passage we read, but he says this, though our outer self is wasting away. Our outer self is wasting away. I'm, I'm 52 years old. So as I was preparing for this, I decided to make a list. I've been thinking about this for a while. I've been, I've been, so I made a list, 12 or 13, what I'm calling um, minor physical maintenance issues <laughs> that I now have. And these aren't things that are going to go away. They're part of the outer self wasting away. I'm, I'm 52, so I have all these things now. They're just with me. Uh, the, I won't share the whole list with you because some of it's disturbing. But, um, <laughs> I mean, the service would be over. But this is one of them, right? I got to wear these now. They're readers. I got to wear them. Because I have a minor maintenance issue as a 52-year-old. And... Um, and, and so it, it, this is the outer self wasting away. This is what Paul is talking about. And because I'm 52, I also remember this ad slogan from the uh, 1970s. Um, do you remember? Some of you might remember this. Uh, you're not getting older, you're getting, you're getting better. Do you remember what that was for? Anybody? Wine. Nope. <laughs> Wine? Wine? Oh my goodness. I'm coming over to this side. You guys look more intelligent than, than that. Um, it was for hair dye. And, and do you remember the brand? No, loving, loving care. Now, I want to tell you right now, you're not getting older, you're getting better is a lie. It's a lie. And, and it was called loving care, but it's not loving to tell lies. And, and they're telling a lie. You're... you're you're not getting older, you're, you're, you're getting older, you're not getting, you're not getting better. You're not. Your outer self is wasting away. The fact that you have to use hair dye proves it. <laughs> proves it. Now, not physically, not getting better, but notice, Paul says our inner self is being renewed by day, day by day. Okay, your, your inner self is getting better. Your inner self is. I mean, that's if you're truly living for him, if you're on top of all of this, if you're emphasizing a quality of discipleship, that's for sure what's happening. That's the ongoing growth that should be happening. You're being renewed day by day. You're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. As the body is wasting away, the spirit is getting stronger. 
That's what should be happening in the life of every 5G Christian. And so Paul writes now to our passage, chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, like now he's, he's slipping into metaphor and he's using this idea of a tent, a physical tent, to speak about the physical body. We know that if the, if the tent that is our earthly home is being destroyed, notice we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's our perfect heavenly, glorified body that's going to be ours when we pass from this life to the next. Now listen, that's, that all makes sense when everything is going well, when we have our priorities set right, when our aim is heaven and not for something less than that, that's when everything is going well. But when I aim for less than that, spiritual growth is actually stunted. And I'm not being renewed day by day. And so the body is wasting away and the spirit is wasting away as well. And sadly, if we spend all of our time, that happens if we spend all of our time on the tent. How much are we emphasizing the tent, the temporal, the physical, the, the here and now? You see, Paul's point is, in, in using this metaphor, is a tent is a temporary structure. It's designed for short-term dwelling. I didn't grow up in an evangelical church, so I didn't know anything about a wan or anything like that when I was growing up. So the thing that I did is I was, we were in an Anglican church, and so I did cubs, and I did scouts. How many people did this drill? Cubs and scouts. Then I actually went and did the one that was for high school. I did venturers. I did the Outward Bound Wilderness School. I have spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time in tents. It's fine for a weekend. You can make it work for a week. But I'm telling you, it's not a permanent dwelling and it doesn't provide enough cover and shelter and insulation. And especially in our climate, that makes sense. It's not designed, aside from Bedouins who think this works and in their climate it does, or people who shop at Mech who thinks this is okay. okay? Like, like, it's not a permanent dwelling. You're not going to invest a lot in a tent. It's not suitable. And if that's true, then why do we spend a disproportionate amount of our time and our energy and our financial resources on the earthly tent that is our physical life, our material life, our here and now life? If you are all about the here and now, you're going to be disappointed at the end of that road. Physical life was rendered temporary, just in case you need to know the history on this. It wasn't always temporary, but it was rendered temporary at the fall, at the time of the fall. God created the first human beings and placed them in the garden, and the situation was perfect. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. That was an eternal, perfect, sin-free situation for them. But sin entered the picture corrupted the world that God had created and marred the image of God in the man and the woman. And so now we live in a world that's tainted by sin and we are the marred image of God. And so when a professing Christian reflects the world's values rather than those of God's kingdom, he or, he or she is not only ineffective in influencing 
a people with the gospel, but he or she has no personal claim on the gospel. See how serious this is? When our eyes are set on the tent, on the worldly, not only are you not fulfilling the mission, but you have no actual claim to be saved, to be a Christian at all. And sadly, cultural Christianity is a plague in our society and in our time. And it's consumed much of what was the church of Jesus Christ. And too many who claim to be Christians show no evidence of interest in in life change or in engagement in the mission or growth at all because they're aiming for something less than heaven. They're all about the tent. They're not about God's building. Revivalist and pastor George Whitfield said, alas, how unlike are Christians to Christianity. Not everyone who claims it has it. And so you need to ask the question at the outset, is my spiritual growth limited or non-existent because I'm too focused on this life? Ask yourself, what am I really living for? Let's make a little list. Are you living for the accumulation of wealth, for financial security? Are you... Uh, living for educational pursuits. I want one more degree, one more certification. I'm just trying to self-improve. Maybe you're all about marriage and family. Maybe that's the highest goal, the, the, the best pursuit that you can come up with. Maybe it's all about leisure and pleasure and entertainment for you. Think about it, look at the list. And think about it. What gets your first and best attention? Now again, look at the list, and it might be con- confusing for a, a little bit when you look at it, because you go, you know what, those, the things on that list, there's some good things on that list. There's some things on that list that, that, that God has given to us, in fact, as a gift, and I would say all of those things fall into that category. There's not really a problem with wealth and accumulating wealth and with money coming into your home, not wrong to save or to have things. Those very often are gifts from God. Obviously, it's not a problem to be married. God created the institution. But if your marriage comes before God, you have a problem. And if you have problems in your marriage, the first thing you need to look at is, am I trying to cherish this more than I actually cherish Christ? Put Christ first, that's going to help your marriage. Get it? If a husband and a wife were having problems together, if they each just focus on Christ and listen to what the Word says about being a husband and a wife, listen, that's going to bring that marriage back together. Christ first, kingdom of God first, aim higher than this world. What gets your first and best attention? Our lives are not primarily supposed to be about these things. Think about it, marriage doesn't even continue into eternity. Marriage is something here that's related to the tent, but it's not related to God's building. So get our priorities straight. Aim for more than what this world offers. Okay, do you feel like you got that one? 
Ready to move on? Yes? yes? All right. I'm also a growing Christian if I embrace hardship as part of the process. Oh, good, an easy one. <laughs> you know, it's so foolish uh, to sell a version of Christianity that is devoid of hardship. And I know a lot of people try to do that. Uh, Jesus said this in John 16, Finish it for me. In this world, you will have tribulation or trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. And Paul puts it this way, verses two through four. For in this tent, what's the tent again? It's like our earthly life. It's our physical life. It's the here and now. In this tent, we groan. That's an important word. We're gonna come back to it. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. The, the idea of, of, of being naked here is, is that in the process of my life, everything is getting, the outer self is being wasted away. I'm becoming more and more exposed. I can't hide things any longer. That's what Paul's thinking of here. The gradual stripping away of our lives. For while we are still in this tent, again, here's the word, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed with Jesus, with the God's Holy Spirit flowing into our lives so that what is mortal, notice, may be swallowed up by life. Now let's talk about that word groan. It's the same one that's used in Mark 7, 34, where Jesus heals a man who is deaf and who had a speech impediment, Jesus heals him, but just before he does, Jesus prays. And the gospel says that he, he sighed heavily or he groaned under the weight of the man's condition as he brought his request before the Father. And one word study a book said this of, of the word groan, uh, Jesus had just looked up to heaven and felt the great divergence between heaven and earth, the enormous difference between heaven's perfection and earth's sin and corruption. Jesus was bound to groan under the strain of such a spiritual ache, an ache for all men to be made whole. I hope you feel that. I'm, I'm sure that you do. I know that you groan because this world is corrupt and it's sinful, and it's filled with pain and hurt and despair. I have no doubt that every person in this room knows this. This groaning is, as one commentator said, a sense of frustration with the limitations and disabilities and sorrows of our mortal existence. In the last few weeks alone, I'm talking the last three or four weeks, I want to tell you some of the things that have been going on around me. I've done two funerals. I stood at the graveside of two loved ones who passed in their 60s and wept alongside their family members. Members of our church were rushed to the emergency room a lot of unknown, serious health conditions coming upon them suddenly. A young couple I know, 
a miscarried a child and bear the pain of that. And and one of my closest pastor friends was taken out by hidden sin. I know something of groaning. And I know you do too. We groan, but it is in those uh, periods of groaning and hardship that we grow best. The hardships are the fertile soil in which the follower of Jesus Christ flourishes and produces fruit. So I thought this would be helpful to show you a kind of a graphic that shows us this, exactly what's going on. Uh, Just calling this the physical and spiritual growth chart. And uh, just to quickly explain this, but along the horizontal axis, along the bottom are the years of our life, assuming, say, um, 80 or 82 years that we have the general life expectancy here. So from birth uh, to death, uh, the vertical axis represents our relative health, from poor health to um, exceptionally good health. The red line then represents uh, a nice uh, arc. This would be an ideal uh, life situation, but the arc of one's physical life. And so uh, you can see at birth, uh, healthy, 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 just becoming healthier and healthier until you uh, peak out in physical health in your late 20s or early 30s. I'm sorry to those of you who are 40-somethings, you still think you're something, but the word this morning is you're already on the downward. And once you get to 52, uh, it really picks up speed, I need to tell you. And, and so you're peaking out in your late 20s, early 30s, and then it's down, down, down until uh, your health runs out and, um, and you pass from this life physically. Well, the cross represents just a little bit in from birth based on some studies that I read, the average age of conversion or rebirth, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ happens around the age of 16. And so we've marked uh, this person's salvation with the cross. The black line then represents what would be ideal spiritual growth. This would be awesome if this happened. But it's just like a perfectly straight diagonal line from that point of immaturity as a new believer to maturity in Christ until the point at which you die and then you go straight up into the presence of God and receive your glorified body. Amen, may it be so, correct? May it be so, but, 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 the reality is the blue line. This is really, again, for someone who's committed to the depth of discipleship, to a quality of discipleship, the blue line represents more the reality. It's God, tell me this isn't true, that your life has some ups and downs to it, that there are peaks and there are valleys, that there are challenging times and there are times when you're at the top of the world spiritually. And so as you look at that and you go, yeah, that kind of looks a little bit more like my walk with Christ. It is kind of up and down. And you might be tempted to think, because we're talking about hardships here being part of the process of us becoming mature followers of Christ. And you might be tempted to think that those hardship times, that's all those valleys. 
That's those times when it, it was so hard and, and my faith wavered and, and, and I uh, regressed a little bit in my walk with Christ, but you'd actually be wrong that the hardships are represented on the blue line as the peaks, the times when I was closest to the Lord, the times when I had to press into him more, the times when I was deeper into the word of God, when I had to pray for his help because I had no other help, when I came to worship and tears flowed because I knew how hard it was and I was pressing in to exalt him as best I could when I surrounded myself with community, when I pressed in more fully to the spiritual disciplines to grow even more because it was just so difficult. Listen, the dips on that blue line are the times when everything was just going so well. I just didn't need to read my Bible as much and prayer just kind of left me and I thought I was kind of on top of the world and had life by the horns. See how that works? You see how hardship is just so much a part of the process of us reaching maturity in Christ. Embrace hardship as part of the process. And when I get this, notice this next. I recognize my need for the Spirit's ongoing work. We're not left alone to cope with the hardships. And if, in fact, we do try to do it alone, we definitely won't grow. Notice verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing. What's the thing he's talking about? Spiritual growth, maturity, transformation of the mortal body. That's the thing. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, notice, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, the, the word that Paul uses here for guarantee, really he's painting a picture for us of a deposit on a purchase. So you've made the purchase, uh, but the purchase isn't going to be delivered yet. Um, the rest of the payment hasn't maybe been made, but it's a, it's a deposit on it. It's on layaway. You're going to get it. It's been set apart for you. And, and this is what Jesus has done for us. I think we all realize that though we would say that we are saved if we're the followers of Jesus Christ, that we have our salvation, we understand that we're still grinding it out here on planet earth, that we're still groaning under the weight of sin, that it's still extremely difficult, and that we have not fully realized yet our final salvation. Everybody get that? Right, we're still groaning. We're gonna get there. And, and so that final salvation is there. It's on layaway. And it is ours. Our name is on it. And the deposit on that is, Jesus said, look, here's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to come alongside you and help you and carry you along through the whole thing. We're still groaning, but we have him. And when you start to think about all the things that the Holy Spirit does for us, and I, I don't know how many things there are. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of things that the Holy Spirit does for us. Do you want to know what some of those are? Maybe you could jot some of these down. At salvation, the Holy Spirit comes into the new believer's life. And he or she is baptized, not water baptism, but baptized by the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation so that the Holy Spirit takes up residence and the Holy Spirit indwells you. You are baptized by the Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made new, 
New life comes through the Spirit. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit so that nothing can change your salvation. God himself seals you. There's nothing that's altering the condition of your salvation. In your ongoing walk with uh, Christ, then what does the Holy Spirit do? He gives you wisdom. He gives you comfort in the midst of the hardships we've talked about. He convicts of sin when you're getting off track and drifting. He guides you. The Holy Spirit empowers you. He manifests himself in our gifts, our talents, our service for him. The Holy Spirit unites us, binds us together as the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit uh, speaks through us to others. He gives us access to the Father in prayer. He teaches us. He moves us. And dozens and dozens of other things that the Holy Spirit does for us. So why would we not, knowing all of that, knowing that he's the gift from Christ to us, that he's the deposit on the thing we want most, which is the final salvation, why would we not then invite him to come, open the way for the Spirit, to do a powerful work, all of this and more in our lives, to recognize his work and surrender to it. We need him. If we're going to grow, if that's the commitment we're making, we need the Spirit to make that happen. And when he's with you, when he's with me in that way, I will show increasing evidence of courageous faith. Now I have the spirit. I'm living down here. It's an impossible situation. There's so much groaning going on, so much hardship to face. I'm trying to have my sight set on the eternal and not the temporal. And life is making it so challenging to actually do that. But I have the spirit. And so I can exercise courageous faith. You see, this is now a declaration of my intent. And so, notice here, verses five and six, so we are always, this is the declaration, we are always, how often are we doing this? Always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, right here and now, we are away from the Lord, we get that. But nevertheless, we walk, this is the line you have to have underlined in your Bibles, right? We walk by Faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11, 1, the definition of faith is, is uh, among uh, the other things that it says, it's the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. That's the thing about the hardships. That's the thing about this temporal life is that there's so many things. Everything really in front of us is, is unknown. When you go to the ER, something's happening. I don't know what it is. And you go to the ER and you're trying to find out what it is, but listen, it's all about the unknowns. There's things I can't see, and will I have courageous faith to trust God who's with me, who loves me, who cares for me? Increasingly, if we're growing in him, we'll be walking by faith and not by sight. So I was thinking and, and looking for an example of courageous faith, and really the first name that came to mind was that of Corey Ten Boom. 
and many of you probably know her story, and if you don't know, how many people know the story of Corrie ten Boom? And if you don't know that story, I would commend the book, uh, The Hiding Place, to you uh, to read. It's, a, it's an amazing story. Uh, Corrie was a, a young woman uh, in Holland, living in Holland during World War II, and she and her father and her sister, after the Nazis occupied the Netherlands, um, she and her father and sister uh, were part of a resistance movement that, among other things, uh, made it their aim to protect, uh, hide, and help uh, Jews escape uh, from the Nazis. And um, curiously, I've had the opportunity to visit Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial in Israel. And there's a, there's a special spot there recognizing those that the Jews call uh, the righteous among the nations. It's the highest honor that Israel bestows on a, on a non-Jew or a Gentile. And uh, Cory and her father and her sister are recognized as righteous among the nations uh, for uh, their assistance to Jews during the war. In 1944, early 1944, uh, their family was betrayed and uh, captured. All three were sent to concentration camps. And uh, the short story is that Corey was the only one to survive the ordeal. And she spent the rest of her life, she was actually released before the end of the Second World War. She spent the rest of her life uh, into old age testifying to God's goodness and his grace to her and telling her story. I, I tell you all of that about Corey because she's, she is such an example of courageous faith. And she said this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And I, I think you'd agree that Cory ten Boom is uniquely qualified to say that. Even with the little bit I've just told you about her. You see, rather than choosing a path of safety that required no courageous faith, she was, she was a wonderful follower of Christ, an example of a depth of discipleship, the very thing we're going after here. And when the Nazis came into their country, many, many Dutch people chose to just live a peaceable life and live with the occupying army and not get involved with the resistance and just try to make it through the war. Maybe that required some element of risk, but not really. You're just trying to play it safe and survive. But Corey and her family decided that wasn't good enough, that that didn't fit with their convictions, and so they risked everything. They risked their property. They risked their very lives. And you get a sense, to use Paul's language, that Corey knew that she was living in a tent and that God had a building for her and that this life didn't matter. Not so much that she would want to preserve it and allow Jews to be sent to the concentration camps and exterminate it. She took a risk. She put everything on the line and she didn't want to play it safe. You think about that example, and then you, you say, what does courageous faith look like today? Because the example is so far and away beyond anything we're going to be able to experience here. But is it not true? I mean, our society is going in a direction so rapidly, so far away from a Judeo-Christian ethic. It's racing away from the things that we believe. We're not going to win this culture war. It's already lost. But the only question that remains is, are the people that are in this room who call themselves the followers of Jesus Christ, 
when the time comes, when your faith is pressed, when you are shown where the line is and you're told to step over it, will you say no? Do you have a courageous faith enough to not compromise when you're pressed about these things? Now that's probably still a future thing. But what about in the immediate? How many of you just are simply playing it safe? You're not willing to take any risks, not willing to say to God, push me, send me somewhere I didn't expect to go, make me do something I didn't expect to do. No matter what it is, and you're going to have to work it out with the Lord, and I'm not going to give you any examples or push you in any direction, but you and the Lord work it out. God, give me a courageous faith and put a test in front of me. Give me something to do that will prove it. How many of you are willing to pray that prayer? That's the way you're going to grow in your faith. And you know, all of this falls into place because ultimately... I'm compelled by the coming judgment. You have to get the long view of things. We don't think about judgment an awful lot. But if we're going to get the eternal perspective, if we're going to aim for more than just this world, you know, the thing I talked about off the top, the nearer you get to death, the more aware you are of your own mortality, the more interested you are in arriving in heaven prepared to see him. I mean, if that happens right now, if, if you were called into the presence of God right now in this moment, are you ready to see him? Are you ready to see him? Are you ready to give an account for how you as a Christ follower have lived your life? You see, this is what Paul says, verses eight and nine. Yes, we are of good courage. We are. And we would rather be away from the body at home with the Lord do you have that assurance that you could say what Paul just said there? I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So whether we at home or away, we make it our aim. Look, notice, we make it our aim to please him. That's the path to growth. That's the declaration at the end of everything we've heard here. And we're saying that we're going to live this way, that we're made to be growing and we're going to grow. And then he gives the secondary motivation here, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to believers. And sometimes we have it in our mind that judgment is only for the unbelievers. And there is a judgment for the unbelievers. Revelation 20 talks about it. It's the great white throne judgment. Only unbelievers there. And Jesus is not there to advocate for the people that are there. He's, he's not going to speak for them. His blood was, was not claimed by them. The great white throne judgment is just about the condemnation of those who rejected Jesus Christ and will now spend eternity apart from him. But the judgment seat of Christ, that's something different. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us as believers, so that each one may, notice what it says here, receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, this, this, is, this is where believers are are judged and reward, reward is meted out. This is, this is really your capacity to bring glory to God. This is not about heaven. Heaven's already decided. This is about what you've done, what you've said, 
how you've sought to live your life, and whether that results in reward or not. And you should want to be presented before the Lord on that day, carrying with you armloads of rewards for having lived the way that he specified in his word, and then laying it down at his feet to bring glory to him. That's what this is about. And I think about all the times and all the, all the ways that we pray. How many phrases that we use like this. Father, I pray that in this you would be glorified. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be pleased with what we're doing. God, be honored with what you see in your people. Do we not pray these prayers? Don't you think that God is like taking note? This thing that you just prayed would glorify God? Well, if it did, on that day, when you stand before him, reward. But if you took the glory for yourself, no reward. See how that works? That's about as specific as it gets. But we want to be in that place where we bring maximum glory to our God. Don't be just content that you've got a ticket to heaven. Be ready to arrive there, face the judgment, and present to God all the things that you have done in his name and for his glory. Be compelled by the coming judgment. Let me close with this, just another minute. Just speaking of the 5G Christian, as this this one, this made-to-be-growing thing fits in with everything else that we're doing. Really, when you, when you think about it, growing overarches all the other ones. We've already uh, talked about graciousness, that the 5G Christian is gracious, and, and we should be growing in our graciousness. We've talked about generosity, and we should be growing in our generosity. We're going to talk about gratitude in our next message, and we should be growing in our gratitude. And the final message is about glorifying him, and we should be glorifying, as we just saw, growing in our ability to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory flowing out from our lives, growing, affecting all four of these. We are made to be growing. So let's get on that, don't you think? Let's get on that. Amen? Let's get on that. All right, let's pray together, and we'll... I close our time. Father, I am uh, grateful again that we have the opportunity to um, call ourselves by your name, to call ourselves Christians, little Christs. And Father, to live our lives for you. So I, I would pray that we would aim for more than what this world offers. And at the end of the day, we would be bringing to you the most glory that we possibly could. Pray for each one in this room that we would be so committed to that and that you would help us overcome all the obstacles that so often stand in the way of these, these things happening. Do a work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We invite him to come and to change us and transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.